You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. This is Ryan Holiday, author of Ego is the Enemy, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer in 2016. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's working in modern marketing. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Today, we're joined by Ryan Holiday, and we're going to talk about his new book, Ego is the Enemy. Ryan Holiday is a strategist and writer. He dropped out of college at 19 to apprentice under Robert Greene, author of The 48 Laws of Power. He went on to advise many best-selling authors and multi-platinum musicians. He served as director of marketing at American Apparel for many years, where his campaigns have been used as case studies by Twitter, YouTube, and Google, and written about in Ad Age, The New York Times, and Fast Company. Ryan has written four previous books, most recently, The Obstacle is the Way, The Timeless Art of Turning Trials into Triumph, which has been translated into 17 languages and has a cult following among NFL coaches, world-class athletes, TV personalities, political leaders, and others around the world. His first book, Trust Me, I'm Lying, Confessions of a Media Manipulator, which the Financial Times called an astonishing disturbing book, (laughs) was a debut bestseller and is taught in colleges around the world. His second book is the best-selling Growth Hacker Marketing, a primer on the future of PR, marketing, and advertising. Ryan, congratulations on Ego is the Enemy, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you for for having me. It's a a pleasure to be here. I love talking about books and and obviously, marketing—it's what I—it's what I do for a living. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a, an intersection of several of uh, of, of your uh, life's journeys here. Before we talk about ego as the enemy, for those listeners who are not familiar with your work, can you give a brief overview of uh, "Trust Me, I'm Lying" and and growth hacker marketing? Yeah, so I wanted "Trust Me, I'm Lying" to sort of be an expose of the modern media system, both from the perspective of you know, maybe someone who wants to take advantage of it, and and someone who uh, wants to understand sort of how their how their news gets made. Um, so I, I'm talking about you know controversial campaigns that I've run for companies like American Apparel. I did the marketing for for Tucker Max, who sold millions of books and spent you know seven years in the New York Times bestseller list. Um, you know what what is this sort of outrage culture that we live in? This sort of clickbait. Uh, universe that that sort of determines what is or isn't news. So I, I wanted to sort of show the forces that uh, that world operates under, um, because you know anyone who's trying to break through the noise has to understand that and and be aware of it. And then also any consumer has to understand that this is in fact how the news which they make decisions based on it uh, operates. So it's. It's a uh, both sort of a how-to and a please don't at the same time. Uh, you had to write about sausage making. 
Is that yeah, it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I was then, wondering if this was like a 21st century version of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Well, so actually Upton Sinclair, after The Jungle, he wrote a book called The Brass Check, which was an expose of journalism. And so um, I sort of, uh, I that was, which was actually very essential and, and inspirational to me when I was writing Trust Me, I'm Lying. So, so yeah, I, I was trying to sort of expose how it works. Um, and sort of, you know, reveal the the sort of the secrets of of the industry. Mm-hmm. And then Gro- Growth Hacker was a, a book that sort of came out after it. It started as a Kindle single um, that, that then got turned into a paperback. Um, it was sort of an experiment that I did with with Penguin Portfolio in 2013, 2014. But the idea was, you know, <clears throat> these brands like Facebook and Twitter and Dropbox and Airbnb, some of these fastest growing sort of multi-billion dollar companies of, of, of this generation, they really got to where they, they were without doing much in the way of traditional marketing. And instead, they, they did what they call growth hacking. And so sort of a, a journey through this world of, of, the, of a position that's very popular in Silicon Valley called a growth hacker, someone who's responsible for, for growing a, a startup very rapidly. Um, you know, what, what can we learn from that style of, of marketing? That's what that book's about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that book has been mentioned by other authors interviewed on the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, it was funny. It, I mean, it started as a 10,000-word book, and, and then it, you know, it, it became a, a, about a 150-page paperback. And it ended up selling, I think, much better than, than any of us expected um, but it's it's been really cool because it's so radically different than how traditional publishing works, which is you know you write a proposal, you sell a book, you take eighteen months to write the book, the book comes out, and then it either succeeds or it doesn't. You know we were able to sort of do this as kind of an iterative experiment, which was kind of like really growth hacking. Exciting. Yeah, basically we got to apply the ideas in the book to the book, which I mean, look, I think the best marketing proves the products uh, or or explains the product in itself. So trust me, I'm lying is a controversial book. If the marketing isn't controversial, I'm not being true to what I've written. And you know, if we weren't applying growth hacking to the growth hacking book, it's hard to to take it very seriously. Yeah, the, the proof would not be in the pudding. Yes, exactly. So then can you before we get on to egos, I mean can you explain uh how uh, a little bit about the obstacle is the way and how that is related to uh, ego is the enemy. Yeah, the the obstacle is the way uh, is a book about uh, Stoic philosophy, which is a Greek and and Roman ancient philosophy. Um, you know, popularized by philosophers like Marcus Aurelius, who's the emperor of Rome, Seneca, who's a political power broker, and Epictetus, who's actually a a slave at one time. Um, it. That book is Stoic philosophy applied to external obstacles, how you overcome a problem, a difficult scenario, a a, a tough venture. And um, then ego is is that philosophy applied to what I think our largest obstacle is uh, and certainly our largest internal obstacle, which would be our our own ego, uh, the the way in which we make our own own lives more difficult than they need to be the way we get in our own way. Um, so one sort of external obstacles and then the other is about this particularly insidious internal obstacle. So in the years ahead on Amazon, when people see the obstacle is the way, you're going to see a lot of 
people who bought this also bought ego as the enemy. Yeah, ho- hopefully. I mean, I think I, you know, there's a saying in book marketing that the sort of the best marketing you can do for your book is to write another book. And so I think when your books uh, met it, sort of circle around the same themes or solve multiple problems held by the same audience, that's be- like, for instance, when I wrote Trust Me, I'm Lying, there was very little potential overlap for obstacle because they're about radically different topics. Mm-hmm. But when you write something that's at least thematically similar, and in this case, they're very, very similar uh, structurally as well and stylistically, you know, you're you're able to launch to a base of hardcore fans, which is the the ideal position that you want to be in with a book launch. Mm-hmm. Well, at some point, you're going to have to settle down and and. <laughs> And stop writing so many books about so many different topics. No, don't do that. No, no. I, I sort of feel like I have two tracks. I have my sort of marketing and, and sort of more business uh, style of writing. And then I have my more uh, what I would call sort of practical philosophy. And I, I, I sort of have to operate out of both different sides of my brain and then different sides of my brand to market them. Although there's certainly overlap with them. But yeah, I, I think uh, – you you want you want to know where each thing fits in your career otherwise you're just sort of you know just jumping from topic to topic <laughs> right right well i think it's it's nice that you can just go write such uh it's amazing that you can write such different uh, kinds of books so Thanks. i read the book and my head is still spinning and the experience that i had that and we should say that uh, you're 29. I'm I'm almost twice your age. But as I read this book, which is a phenomenal book for in, uh, anyone to write of any age, as I was reading it, and uh, we're going to talk about the book, but it took me back through my working career, my my life in the army, uh, my life working on Madison Avenue, all these different jobs I've had, and I was. You were giving examples throughout history and, and modern day, but I was also, <laughs> I think I almost benefited even more because I knew the kinds of uh, the situations you were describing. So um, I read the book and then I went back and reread the prologue. So can you tell us the story of, of how this book came to be and why the title of the book is tattooed on your right forearm? Well, sure, sure, and, and look, it, it means a lot to me to hear that it was sort of bringing you back to places in your life. Uh, <clears throat> one of the quotes I have in the book, there's this line from from Plutarch where he's saying, "You know, I I did not so much uh, gain the knowledge of things by the words, but as words by the experience of things." Like I like it when um, I hear that I've written about something and then it resonates to people's it. it it is confirmed by people's experiences in real life. I think as a writer, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to speak to some truth in the human experience. And you can sort of only guess from your experience in your life and your research. But ultimately, it's it's got to stand up uh, you know, to the, 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 the test of time that is the reader's life. So that, that means a lot to me. Um, the the prologue of this book was a was a difficult thing to for me to write because I'm not in the obstacle is the way I'm very the word I does not appear in the book I'm not in the book at all um, I don't talk about my own experiences at all I'm talking about the philosophy and then these stories and and so that's originally what I set out to do with with ego 
And then I, I sort of had my own experience with a topic that I felt like was worth sharing. You know, I was the director of marketing at American Apparel for a long time. And in 2014, as I was finishing this book, uh, the, the company more or less imploded. Dove, who was the founder, was fired by the board of directors. Um, then, you know, he initiated a hostile takeover with a, with a hedge fund. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, negative reporting about this. Ultimately, the company uh, declared bankruptcy and, and went private. Um, and and I, I had a number of other relationships around that same time with with mentors and 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 sort of people I looked up to for a long time that sort of behaving in this erratic, dysfunctional, destructive way. And and and, and this was also bumping up against my own ego, my own you know sort of coming into my own as a writer and and what I wanted out of life. And so it's just a very and uh, all the success you had at a relatively young age. Cer- certainly, yeah, it, it was something I wrestled with, and you know, was was trying to process, and so it was just a difficult, chaotic time, and and so I thought, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna be in the the I'll I'll write the whole book, and then I'll be at the end of the book, um, it'll be sort of like an interesting afterward. That's sort of what I was thinking, um, but as 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 the the book was you know went through my editor and sort of my advanced readers, like I got the sense that. The, the the resounding feedback was that I had to sort of come to the front of the book, which was which was hard for me to do. Ironically, in a book about ego, I, d- I didn't want to be in it at all. <laughs> but the the story that I tell in the beginning of the book is what that was like, what what it's like to be successful early, and the the sort of the the way that can mess with your head, and all of a sudden you sort of want to tell yourself a story. You want this to say something about you as a person. You know, you can get very wrapped up in in that success. You can you can you know, you can, you're obsessed with maintaining it. You're obsessed with, with, with propagating it. And, and, you know, I, I think, I think the outsized role that this work had come to take in my life that, you know, uh, I had to do everything perfectly. I had to get my way, you know, it was, it was just sort of wrestling with my, with my own ego and, and the sort of precipice that I was staring over was the one that I'd just seen, you know, my mentors and friends go right over the other side of it. And so that sort of brought the, the, what was supposed to be a, you know, sort of an abstract study of an idea became much realer to me than, than maybe I'd anticipated when I sat down to do the book. Yeah, but it was good. Thank you. That means a lot. No, but I mean, it was good that, well, you don't wish things like that on anyone, but uh, there was something that came out of it. Sure, sure. And look, there's always stuff like that happening. There's always something you can learn. The problem, I think, a lot of times is we're not open to learning it. And so it was just the right place, right time for me. Like, if I had not been writing a book about this topic, would I have been as open or receptive to recognizing those signs? I'm not sure. So it, I was very fortunate in that regard. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, just to add to your, your, your discomfort at talking about yourself at the beginning of the book, the second paragraph is one sentence who the hell am I to write it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that 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 was the that was the question. It's like uh, you know, you write a book about stoicism. It's hard because now no one will ever let you complain about anything ever again. Um, and then you write a book about ego. The first question is like, well, are you don't ha- are you saying you don't have an ego? It's like that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm I'm saying. That we all have an ego, and then it causes problems for all of us, especially for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if it didn't, I wouldn't have felt compelled to tackle this topic at all. Yeah. Well, let's go on to uh, 
the structure of the book. Can you explain, and this is how you organized it, the, the three stages uh, that people find themselves in at, at any given time in life and, and how that's related, how, how ego is a, plays a different role in all of them? Yeah, Sean Sean Coyne, uh, who I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, he, he writes a lot of amazing stuff for Stephen Pressfield's website. He's Stephen Pressfield's editor, and he, he was a, formerly a, a very powerful book agent. He's talked a lot about the the critical uh, importance of a three part structure, and, and he gave me some great advice when I was writing Obstacle about the three part structure. That book is Perception, Action, and Will. This book I I set as Aspiration, Success, Failure, thinking that. We are at one of those three phases at any time in our life. We're aspiring to do something where we've achieved some success or dealing with some failure or adversity. And uh, ego is then the least helpful thing that we can introduce into either of those three phases. And ego manifests itself differently, but with equal destructiveness at each one of those three phases. And so the book is is split into those three parts, and then there's chapters about what ego looks like in each of those phases. Mm-hmm. And can you just define ego the way you do in the book? Yeah, so I'm obviously not talking about it in the Freudian sense. I'm not yeah. a doc. I'm not a psychologist. I'm, I, I have no idea what the actual sort of psychological definition of ego is, or you know what diagnostic uh, diagnostic checklist would be required. I'm talking about it colloquially, right? Like uh, when, as Bill Walsh says. Uh, Ego is when confidence becomes arrogance, right? So it's that line where it stops being based on anything real and starts to become this sort of consuming notion of our own self-importance, of our own specialness, uniqueness, when it when it severs our connection to the reality of the world around us. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you probably haven't heard this, but in a certain way, the ego, after reading your book, it I, I started thinking about termites. <laughs> Sure. Termites are unbelievably destructive. Uh, You don't always see what it's doing. Uh, The same thing with ego, the way you highlighted in the book about how cancerous, poisonous uh, ego can be. Can you talk about that? Or let's let's break it down. Could you talk about some aspects of of ego as it relates to somebody who's trying to get somewhere, who's trying to aspire? Yeah, I mean, I was talking to an NFL coach when I was thinking about writing this book, and I, I was asking about ego, and he said, you know, ego is the cancer of my profession. And I was sort of, what do you mean? And he was saying that, you know, if you make a deci- if you make a draft pick out of ego, you're going to make the wrong pick. If you, you know, you're if you're you're deciding a play based on ego, you know, you're going to make the wrong play. And when you're ma- the 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 role of the NFL coach is to strip ego out of the equation to look at things objectively and rationally and clearly. Um, and I think that's what what we suffer to do or, or we struggle to do as writers or as creatives or entrepreneurs what what you're the thing that you're doing is difficult enough the the hardest thing is to introduce ego into that equation so you know you're starting you, when you're starting out there's a quote I have from Epictetus in the book he's saying one cannot learn that which they think they already know ego is so toxic when we're aspiring to do something because it blocks us from from feedback and from getting the education that we need. Mm-hmm. And when we're successful, it's the same thing. Now we think we've learned everything. Now we think we're perfect and we're not realizing how things are changing. We're not, you know, we're we're, we're not seeing the the reactions on our competitors or our employees. We're not we're 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 now disconnected from the people that we need to be relating to and working from. And then when we fail, ego is sort of most dangerous because 
now we're instead of learning from what happened, let's say, and saying, hey, look, I made this mistake or I touched the stove and it was hot and it was bad. You know, it's this is unfair. This shouldn't have happened. They screwed me over. You know, I'm never going to recover. Exactly. Exactly. So ego is is sort of preventing us from from learning. I think most critically, ego is preventing us from learning at every single step of the process, whether we're, you know, at the beginning or the end of that process. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, you've got two chapters in the book. One of them is be a student. And in the middle of part of the book, it's always be a student, two whole stories about the importance of being a student. And I, those really resonated with me uh, because the listeners to this podcast are uh, folks that are, I think, by and large, trying to get a handle on these uh, fast-moving, big changes in the marketing world that you understand. And particularly somebody who's been doing it for a number of years, it just it's it seems very foreign foreign and 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 for some uh, business owners, it's just it's overwhelming, like it never was before. And they're always uh, you know, obviously they're interested in learning, um, and they want to they want to succeed. Um, can you explain why uh, not being a student and 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 or, or this this notion that you have in there about? When you think you've learned it, it's about to get bad. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think most people understand, or it's it's more obvious, like why you have to be a student of, of a craft, like at the beginning of the craft, because obviously you don't know it, so you got to learn it. But what happens is this idea that you've arrived, or that things have. Uh, it, it's it's harder once you've achieved success to continue that mindset because now you're having you're having to submit or admit that you're not as good as you think you are. But, but in fact, it, like there's a quote I have in the book from John Wheeler, who's a physicist, and he's saying, you know, as our, as our island of knowledge grows, so too does the, the shoreline of our ignorance, which means that the more things you learn and understand, the more it butts you up against other things that you are unfamiliar with. Mm-hmm. The more successful you are, all of a sudden you're dealing with problems that were never never existed before you know when you're a one-man shop all you have to do is manage yourself now all of a sudden you've got five employees well now you have to understand you know management and uh you know morale and 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 contracts and healthcare and human resources and all these things right mm-hmm. so um the the more if if you feel like oh i only need to learn at the beginning mm-hmm. But you don't feel if if you if you fail to retain that beginner's mindset, that openness to learning, that curiosity and that drive to improve and learn, well, it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because you're right. You there's nothing left for you to learn. There's nothing left you can learn. And so you you start to atrophy. And so this like look, the reason most successful companies are disrupted is because they've closed themselves off to technological change and to trends and and to 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 shifting sort of demographics and and conditions and so we have to cultivate that in our own lives we have to cultivate a a, a sort of a perpetual openness to to learning and and a desire to expose ourselves to things that might that might very well threaten what we think we know or what we hold dear yeah, a great example is um, Kodak. Yeah, uh, <laughs> where they uh, they invented the the digital cameras. As I understand, they had that patent on it, but they kept it locked up in a closet because it was going to threaten their film business. Sure. Now they're gone. Uh, they didn't want to hear about it. They was like, no, 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 don't. <laughs> well, don't and, have... and just 
just think about the the sort of ego inherent in thinking that you could invent this amazing technology and then prevent the world from having it mm -hmm. right that it's like oh no because film is good for us we are so powerful that we can actually prevent digital transformation from occurring that's preposterous but this is what happens when you know you're a multi-billion dollar company with hundreds of thousands of employees and and you're a dominant you you uh, there's a line in Billions, which is one of my favorite shows. He says, you know, people call you Superman long enough. You start to think you can fly. And mm -hmm. uh, I think that's what happens. Yeah. the um, There's a chapter in the book that really surprised me. You talked about don't be passionate. And and these days, everyone's saying, oh, follow your passion. Go with that. What? Uh, yeah. What, what's going on there? Yeah, I, I don't, I'm probably going to take a lot of heat for that. Um, I think passion... I contrast passion with purpose. I think purpose is balanced and uh, deliberative and orderly and uh, powerful. And I think passion is uh, intense but disorganized and often foolhardy. I don't think zealousness is a positive attribute. Certainly, I don't want anyone that works for me to be zealous, right? Uh, that's a... That's a recipe for them screwing something up, right? I want someone who has purpose. I want someone who knows what they're trying to do. They knows what they know what they need to learn. They know the relationships they need to build. They know the objectives that they need to achieve. And so I think, uh, you know, I see this with with authors. They'll be like, "Oh, I'm writing a book. It's going to sell a million copies, and I'm going to debut on the list, and I'm going to become famous." I compare that to someone who's like, "Look, I believe in this book." I decided to write it because I wanted to reach a large audience. Here's the the plans that I put into place. Here are the relationships I'm going to bring. Here's my budget. What what should we do? What you know? What are the best decisions that I should do? And let's let's check these off the list one by one. Mm -hmm. You know, I I feel I find that passionate people are distracted and easily sort of uh, uh, easily go off into the weeds. Where I find purpose people purposeful people are much more likely to achieve their objectives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned at the, another part of the book about maintaining your own scorecard. Sure. Uh, it was just uh, seems like it's very helpful from a mental health standpoint, too. Can sure. you explain that? Well, look, dude, that's, I was telling you, you know, they want to sell millions of copies. Well, look, it's not in your control how many copies you sell. <laughs> right. um, you, you, what is in your control is the amount of energy and effort that you focus on the product itself and then ultimately on the marketing as well. But, you know, if your judgment of whether a product product or project was successful is how much money it made or how many copies it sold, you've set yourself up now. You've taken the 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 project and you've put it into other people's hands. Like so I I worked on this book. I'm you know, I'm talking to you, I'm doing the marketing and everything. But ultimately, I don't determine how many copies it sells in the first week, whether it sells 10,000 or it sells 1,000. Um, but I'm happy with it right now. I know that I did a good job. And I know that I achieved what I set out to achieve with it. So when those first sales come in on the, you know, the Wednesday after the release, the, you know, the following Wednesday, I'm going to be interested in what those numbers say, but I'm not going to be crushed. And I'm also not going to be elated uh, on them. I'm going to be uh, even about it because, like, I've—it's all upside for me. <laughs> You'll be interested. Yeah, that's a good word. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about the 
the danger of early pride, the danger of of early success. I had I I hadn't realized that phenomenon, and then I started thinking about all these artists uh, who get successful very young, and how it becomes uh, much more difficult for them. Yeah, like, uh, like Elvis. Sure, it's it's hard. I mean, they call it the sophomore slump because most people are not able to. Most people who are successful out of the gate are not are either intimidated or distracted or corrupted by that success, and they're not able to uh, to ever meet, ever come close to meeting it again. And and look, I, I've been fortunate enough. Although I was successful early, it was over a long enough period of time, and it wasn't sort of life changing, transformative success. So I I could sort of see it from both perspectives, but you know. Uh, I'll give you an example. Obstacle came out and it, it, it's done quite well over the last two years, but I'd already sold this book before it came out and I was already working on it. So I was, I was able to focus on the work rather than, you know, throwing myself a party about how well it did. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people, they find themselves sort of intimidated by their success. The expectations change. And so they're, they're, uh, the the basically the success goes to their head it starts to whisper in their ear that they're better that they're you know amazing that they're superior and that they know uh, how to do it again sure or or that they that they did it again that that they did it in the first place because they're of some inherent genius <laughs> rather than from hard work and from putting in the time Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you tell the story of John DeLorean and how his ego played a role versus uh, <clears throat> where he had come from at GM? Yeah, I mean, what, what's interesting about DeLorean is that he was a brilliant engineer. His his vision for what the DeLorean Motor Company could be was has mostly been proven correct. I mean, it's sort of what Tesla is doing now. But he sort of petulantly reacted against the discipline and order of GM. Like he really hated the bureaucracy there. And I've been as a part of bureaucracy and I understand that, but he didn't set up any real order at, at, at DeLorean. It was, you know, he was invested in multiple projects at the same time. He filled it with sycophants and cronies. Uh, he sort of encouraged people to work on side projects at the same time. He didn't like process. He didn't. Yeah, he did like process. He did like order, and he didn't want to be the man. You know, he didn't want to be like GM, which he felt had crushed his creative spirit. And so the result was chaos and disorder and dysfunction, and ultimately, uh, you know, outright fraud and criminality. And so uh, it didn't matter how good an idea the car was. It, you know, Murphy's law: what can go wrong will. And when a lot of things went wrong, he was incapable of adjusting and dealing with those problems and solving them. And ultimately, he decides, you know, the, the way for me to solve this is on, with a multi-million dollar cocaine deal that will hopefully uh, patch over my financial problems. And uh, as we know, that did not that did not end well. Yeah, <laughs> it it didn't. And it was just a, a great uh, contrast that you, you set up there. And it's, it, it, it was uh, it was very interesting. I just didn't know. I just didn't. Rec- I remember that. Um, but I didn't know about all the background there. Well, so, the, I think the problem is we we look at people like DeLorean and Howard Hughes, retro, sort of with some distance, and we just think of them as these sort of brave, creative mavericks. And they were mavericks, and they they were special. But you know, ultimately, it didn't work out for them for a reason. And I think it's worth asking why, and ultimately putting the responsibility on them, not on 
on, you know, they didn't want them to succeed or, you know, they, the system tried to shut them down. It's, it, that's not what it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, I am a graduate of Virginia Military Institute and one of the, uh, alumni, most famous alumnus is, uh, George C. Marshall. Uh-huh. So I guess, uh, Ryan, you had me at George C. Marshall. <laughs> no, he's he's one of my heroes. And he's certainly one of the heroes of the book. Yeah, so I was wondering if you could share with the listener uh, more about uh, his story and uh, his success uh, is probably his success is probably also why people don't know as much about him as they would uh, General Patton or General uh, Eisenhower. Yeah, you know what's fascinating about uh, Marshall? Did you know that he petitioned President McKinley for his military commission? <laughs> Huh, I like, didn't realize. I mean, I've read a, a biography of him. I guess I did. We don't realize sort of how that that, that generation, because he wasn't part of the greatest generation. He was sort of older than that. He was. He was class of 01, 1901. Yeah, he had a foot in in two different centuries, really, and, and we forget that. But, anyways, Marshall's the hero of the book because really he accomplished more than any other of the the you know maybe other than Eisenhower. He's probably our most accomplished. World War II general, but he really did it without seeking the spotlight. He did he did so operating behind the scenes. There's all reading reading about him. You can find almost no instances of him of of any of the sort of petulant you know vanity that you know that that sort of crippled a, a Patton or a or a MacArthur and mm. ultimately led to their downfall. And and I think what's so profound about Marshall, and, and he really is a proof of his own sort of humility and, and egolessness, is, you know, he turned down a million dollars after World War II to not write his memoirs. Like someone, pay, someone uh, like Life Magazine offered him a million dollars to publish his memoirs, and he decided not to do it. And one of the reasons he's not famous, and if it wasn't for the Marshall Plan bearing his name, almost no one would know who he was. Uh, <laughs> That that was him deciding. Hey, look, I don't. I've got too much work to do. I don't care about getting attention. I'm going to focus on my work. Writing this would be a distraction. And so, he really suffered in terms of recognition uh, for his egolessness. But he certainly didn't suffer for lack of accomplishment or influence or power. He's arguably one of the most influential people of the entire 20th century. But he did it without without needing to be an egomaniac the way that, you know, MacArthur seemed to think that he needed to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you tell the, the also mention the story about how President Roosevelt uh, asked him if he wanted to lead the, the D-Day uh, invasion? Yeah, I mean, that was, that was the other thing about Marshall is he was one of the few generals that did not distinguish himself in any uh, battlefield command. But that was, again, not, that wasn't a decision out of his control. It, the job of 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 commanding the troops at D-Day was was offered to Marshall uh, because uh, FDR felt like he owed it to Marshall. As as important as Marshall was in Washington, he understood that every general sort of pined to define himself uh, on the field, and and so he said, "Look, this is yours. Just tell me that you want it, and it's yours." And and Marshall felt that. Uh, although he was eminently qualified and he wanted it, that he didn't want some sort of undue influence to, uh, you know, make the president decide one way or another. And he said, "Look, don't don't think about me. Make the decision that you think is best for the country." And and ultimately, FDR chose to have Eisenhower do it, who did an amazing job and maybe the best job that anyone could have done. Um, and he needed Marshall there there in Washington, and so that was the decision. But 
you know, this is, I'm not trying to make him out to be some martyr, but this was a, a this was a profound sacrifice reputationally and ego-wise to turn down command of the largest invasion in the history of warfare, you know, an immense amount of glory and, and, and attention and power, you know, millions of troops, millions of vehicles, uh, you know, th- this was, this was the main thrust of, of the, of the European theater. And, and he said, look, just make the decision that you think is best. Don't worry about my personal feelings. And, and I just find that to be, uh, you know, awe-inspiring and, 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 and amazing. Yeah, it's just a superhuman control of his own ego. Yeah, and look, his wife, and I, I think I quote this in the book, his wife said, look, he wasn't, it wasn't that he was without ego it was, or, or that he was some superhuman. It was that he, he, he made it important to himself to deal with it, that he, he, he kept these things under control, mm-hmm. and he was able to rational like he Again, he wanted the D-Day thing more than anything, but he knew that it wasn't the right thing to do, and he, he overrode that impulse. And that, that's what I think makes it even more impressive. Yeah. Um, well, have uh, you ever been to that school, Virginia Military Institute? I haven't. I've been to the Citadel, but not to the, the, the Virginia Military Institute. Well, you should, you should go at some point. It's got the George C. Marshall Museum. And oh, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> and the Marshall Foundation is there. And you know, I feel very strongly about the book. And I have a very close friend. He was best man at my wedding, and he's a fellow graduate of VMI. And he's now the dean of the faculty there. Oh, wow. And he, he's a retired Army general, and he was also, along the way, he got a Ph.D. in English from Princeton, where he was on the West Point faculty for a while, but, you know, Iraq war vet and all that. Yeah. And I'm, your publisher was nice enough to send me a paperback and a hard copy. I'm going to be sending my hard copy to my friend who's the dean of the faculty and uh, strongly recommend that they add this to the reading list because so much of what you write about, I kept thinking about, a VMI, and not just because of what you talk about George C. Marshall, but at a, at a school like that, or the Citadel, or some of these other places, they really, teaching you humility is real important, <laughs> just like in the military. Sure. And well, so it's kind of a Spartan life, and I was just thinking that it, uh, this, is, this is such a natural, and that they should have you come there and speak at the new uh, Center for Leadership and Ethics at VMI. Well, that that would be amazing. I would be completely flattered and honored. I, I think, you know, I I think someone like George Marshall sort of represents the the very best of of not just what it means to be an American, but what it means to be a I think a a, a human being in the 20th century. This idea that he would, you know, it was the day of his retirement that he gets a call from Truman and says, "Hey." Like I need you to go to China. There's no one else who can do it, and he and he does it, and 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 so there was this immense amount of sacrifice, but and and at the same time an immense amount of of power uh, and and talent and 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 the the willingness to 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 do those things without I think ever uh, I mean there's a quote I think it was from Truman he says never did Marshall think of himself and and I, and I, I just found that to be very inspiring. Yeah, so I think I think you would really, you would get a lot out of going there. It would be it's right up your alley. And I've read other things you've written just about military history, which is a great interest of mine. And uh, uh, please keep writing those things. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. That that means a lot to me. So, Ryan, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? 
I would say that whatever you are, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, ego is making, is, is impeding you and making whatever you're trying to do more difficult. And if you can, if you can reduce it even 10%, it's going to make what you're doing that much easier. Mm. Yes. Now, the next question I always ask the authors. Yeah. And that is what books have inspired your work and career? But before you answer, okay, because it's Ryan Holiday, we're talking, there's a whole section of your site called Books to Base Your Life On. Sure. <laughs> and I, I, I kind of thought, you know, if I asked that question to Ryan Holiday, uh, he might say, well, you might just want to go to that section of my site. But would that be a good answer? Is that whole, that whole, that whole section of your site about the books to base your life on. And I, I should also mention for the listener's benefit, you are reading 200 to 300 books a year. Is, is that right? I read a lot. I mean, I could probably spend the next 20 minutes answering this question with so much <laughs> okay. recommendation. Um, I, I w- I'll, I'll pick a couple books, though. I think I'll pick two that I think are interesting or unique. So one, Marcus Aurelius's Meditations has probably been the most profound influence on me as both a writer and as a human being. I think it's fascinating that you know the most powerful man in the world was sitting there writing these notes to himself about how to be a better person, you know, 2000 years ago and that th- this survives to us. And what 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 I think is so refreshing about it is that he wrote it entirely not for publication. So there's an authenticity and a vulnerableness and a and a and a rawness there that it's hard to match and I think we should, you know, ideally you're you're writing for both an audience but you're also not writing for an audience and so I think there's a, a model there. And then one of one of the authors and he has a new book out about the Rolling Stones his name is Rich Cohen. Um, he, he wrote this book called The Fish That Ate the Whale um, about Samuel Zamuri, who was the, the the owner of United Fruit. But it's, it's this fascinating biography of what you think would be a, about a pretty boring person. But all his books, I really, uh, Rich Cohen is one of the few authors that I sort of would hold up as someone I would want to be like, you know, when I'm when I grow up. Mm. You know, he he's just a, a brilliant writer who who manages to to teach the reader these great things. And and really make you think, but then he is, he's also so adept at inserting his personality and his his unique worldview into the book in such a seamless, entertaining way. So I would urge people to read his stuff. I I'm, I could not be a bigger fan. Mm, wow. So the next question is another one. <laughs> it's just kind of funny to ask you. I usually say, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? But I want to make sure the listener understands. Again, on, on ryanholiday.net, there's the Ryan Holiday reading recommendation email. Can you explain that? Yeah. So I I, I started maybe eight years ago. I just I, I wanted to create a reading uh, newsletter, but I didn't know what about, and I didn't want it to be about me. So I just started making it about recommending books that I like, and now it's something like almost 60,000 people. So it's been... It's been really cool, and obviously, it's it's not bad for promoting my own books too. But yeah, Rich's new book on the Rolling Stones is quite good. Um, I'm trying to think what I what I read recently. Oh, I read this amazing work of fiction called Mister Eternity by Aaron Thayer um, that comes out. I think it's out in August. Uh, I don't read a lot of new fiction, but I just loved this novel. It was one of my favorites in a long time. So that would be like on your you do these emails once a month, is that right? Yeah, I do it once a month. So that'd be like on your August one. It'd be in August, yeah. But I loved it so much, I actually recommended it like in in May or or April because I I read an early copy and I was like, 
like I never pre-order books, uh, even though I read a lot. Uh, I just never, I don't know. I, I never like something so much. I want it six months from now. Uh, but this was, this would be one of the few that I would pre-order. Okay, cool. And, and how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? Is that ryanholiday.net? Yeah, ryanholiday.net. And, uh, the email list is there if you want recommendations. Okay, great. Ryan, I just want to share with the listener one excerpt. Okay. And this is from the beginning, actually, in the prologue. It's always nice to be made to feel special or empowered or inspired, but that's not the aim of this book. Instead, I have tried to arrange these pages so that you might end in the same place I did when I finished writing it. That is, you will think less of yourself. I hope you will be less invested in the story you tell about your own specialness, and as a result, you will be liberated to accomplish the world-changing work you've set out to achieve. The name of the book is Ego is the Enemy. The author is Ryan Holiday. Ryan, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. You're way too kind. And that closes the book on Episode 75 of the Marketing Book Podcast. But please don't let the end of this episode be the end of what you can learn about modern marketing. Visit marketingbookpodcast.com for links to all the things we talked about in this interview and access to free marketing guides from my agency. And while there, make sure to sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. Okay, you've heard from me. Now, I want to hear from you. I love hearing from listeners like you. I've received some great ideas from listeners, so please keep them coming. Likewise, if I can help point you to the right book, or other marketing resource, please let me know if I can help. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Or heck, just tweet me up using hashtag marketingbook. <laughs> Listeners are doing all three. And please join us next time as we talk with New York Times bestselling author Jonah Berger about his new book, Invisible Influence, The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. 